Ahoy there! Welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast with Stories Beyond the Horizon. My name's Matt Valor. This is episode 8, the last episode in series 1. And what a journey it's been! I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I really enjoyed this review from Chris in Melbourne who said, I'm not sure if Valor is a genius or an idiot. Either way, he's doing my head in. In a good way. Well, mate, I hope I do your head in this episode as well. Thanks for being part of the voyage. I have to admit, this whole adventure is destabilising. It's, it's destabilising for me, even coming back to these texts. But that's part of the way that I think the Bible has power in the world that we live in. We don't have other texts like this that have such a history of use. You know, you pick up great novels or, or other famous parables from the past. You can read them. You read them with other people. They are meaningful. They provoke you to think differently about your life in the world. But they haven't sustained entire empires. They haven't forged the basis for huge institutions that have lasted hundreds, if not thousands of years. We can't ever come to these texts cold. Even if we didn't even read them ourselves, we still come from cultures that have been shaped one way or another by the influence of the biblical texts. And so for me, that's why I find reading the Bible as a destabilizing experience is a good thing. It's why I like the image of the pirate, of the idea of stories beyond the horizon, that there's another story world out there that can disrupt the one that we live within in this present world. I want to give a shout out today for a book that I highly recommend. It's called Mutiny, Why We Love Pirates and How They Can Save Us. And it's written by a guy called Kester Bruin. It's really the book that helped me fall in love with the pirate as an idea. And it is, in some ways, about walking the line between genius and idiot, about the creative power of the outside, of the unpredictable, the destabilizing, the unknown. When the forces, the powers of human empire say, live this way, believe this way, do this, think this, wear this, want this, is there a space outside to which we can bravely sail and create a life that doesn't play by all their rules. It's that pirate ideal that has shaped my approach to storytelling with the Bible, but also particularly that I think shapes the reading that I have wanted to draw out of Genesis 1 to 11. This is the final episode and it's an overview episode. I want to bring now together all of the themes that we've dealt with in the previous seven episodes. The first, of course, was an introduction, and then we've had six on this prologue to Genesis. And we've covered a lot of ideas in a pretty short space of time. And I'm not going to thread them all together and tie them up nicely in a neat little bow, because that's not how stories work. Only boring stories. Real stories are interesting and messy. But at the same time, good stories have twists and turns and punchlines and reveals. Moments where you go, oh. And I think that Genesis has some of those for us. I'm going to try and tell a story like that in this episode. To begin with, let's recap the stories we've told so far. 
We began, of course, in the beginning. Except we said perhaps it wasn't the beginning. As I've retranslated the Bible into English, we've kicked up some of these complex translation questions. And the first was in that very first line of the first word, the first sound even of that first word, that in Hebrew is ambiguous and creates instead the possibility of a translation when Elohim created the heavens and the earth, a story that doesn't begin from nothing, but comes from somewhere, as Elohim, the gods, look on the face of the deep, the face of chaos. This story we reflected was profoundly different to the stories the Israelites knew well from Babylonia, in which the gods create the world through violence, through tearing out the heavens from the womb of the waters. Instead, in Genesis, Elohim creates the world without violence by looking on the face of the other, the face of chaos. It is, we reflected, like looking on the face of the terrorist and deciding to make something new. Then in the second creation story, we meet a new character, Yahweh of the Elohim, one of the gods. And Yahweh of the Elohim creates the Adam, the earth creature, and places them in a garden in Eden. And we told the story there of how the Adam was put into a sleep and from its side was torn a woman a founding mythology for the construction of male identity based on the idea that something has been taken. And in this story, the woman takes the initiative to grasp at wisdom and knowledge. But Yahweh sides with the man and legitimizes the violent oppression of women. Yahweh persuades the Elohim to expel Eve and Adam from the garden so that they cannot grasp at eternal life. They cannot become like gods. And there, outside the garden, we told the story of their children, of Cain and Abel, and how Cain murders Abel, how Eve is embodied in the earth and curses her son for his violence, and how instead of heeding the curse and choosing a path away from violence... He accepts it and becomes a wanderer and his descendants more violent than him. Until in time there is so much violence that the gods must try and reset the earth. They yearn for an apocalypse to do away with it all and return to Eden. But the apocalypse fails. The earth is still shriveled and the children of the Adam are scattered again all over the face of the earth. But while the Elohim try to negotiate, to accept and yet navigate the imperfection of the world, the incompleteness, the unacceptability of the status quo, with a treaty, a covenant, a way forward for humans and animals and everything in the earth, Yahweh gives up. Yahweh, who cannot tolerate uncertainty or imperfection, is content to revel in the aroma of sacrificed life. And so then the story concludes with the great city and tower at Babel on the plain of Shinar, 
as humans reach for the heavens to become like the gods, Yahweh scatters their plans, confuses their language, renders their designs on greatness a bavel, a confusion struck into the very heart of the world. A confusion now found even in the original. A pirate confusion that destabilizes our tale. And this is the confusing story, the failure of the great imperial plan that takes us to the man and his father, Abraham and Terah, who leave Ur of the Chaldeans, a great imperial city, and set out into the wilderness of the unknown. And so in response to this uncertain prologue, we're looking for a way to make sense of it all. And in our penultimate episode, we read this story back again with Ched Myers and the insights of anarcho-primitivism, challenging the idea that civilization equals progress. Reading the story of the development of the city-state from Enoch, the first city, built by Cain to Babel, the great imperial desire that is smashed apart by Yahweh. Reading the folly of this drive for empire because of the violence it produces. What profit is there in acquiring the whole earth if it comes at the cost of our souls? This is a story to unsettle us. Now, of course, we've also talked about all kinds of other things. Jigsaw puzzles and philosophy, mad museum gift shops and the problems of advertising with the Bible. We've even talked about zombies and a ring and something about the end of the world. And we bantered with literary figures in an Oxford pub. Oh, it's been quite the adventure. But friends, sail with me one more time. There is one more horizon we need to explore. This one involves seeds. Holy seeds. Yeah, I'm not talking about fruit trees. This is the hidden narrative power of the genealogies. Now, in order to navigate this journey, I'm going to turn to the work of Mark Brett, who is a professor of Old Testament at Whitley College in Melbourne, part of the University of Divinity, and I should say has been a real personal encouragement to me in my own academic work with the Bible, which is something for which I'm really very deeply grateful. Mark wrote a book on Genesis uh, nearly 20 years ago now. It's still, in my view, a groundbreaking book. Uh, it's called Genesis, the subtitle Procreation and the Politics of Identity. And his central idea is that Genesis is written during the Persian period as a response to the ideology of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we need to tell a bit of the story here just to set the scene. The tribes of Israel were a people from the hill countries of Canaan. But at some point they formed a monarchy. The most famous kings are David and his son Solomon. And according to the stories, at least, they make a great kingdom. But with their descendants, the kingdom splits. A larger northern kingdom called Israel, with its capital in Samaria, and a smaller southern kingdom called Judah, with its capital city in Jerusalem. Eventually, these kingdoms fall. First Israel to the Assyrian Empire in the 9th century BC, and then nearly 200 years later, Judah eventually falls to the new Babylonian Empire. Both these kingdoms and their people suffer exile. In the case of the Babylonian exile, all the leaders of Judah from Jerusalem are carted off to Babylon. 
and there they spend the next 70 years. But during that time, Babylonia falls to the Persian Empire, who have a different policy on governance. Rather than centralising everything from their capital city, they are willing to allow the empire to operate with regional governors. The different peoples of the empire are allowed to preserve their own language and their own religion, as long as they pay their tribute and acknowledge the Persian emperor as king. And so it's in this context that the people of Israel are allowed to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. And Nehemiah, who becomes famous for his story of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, is appointed as one of the early governors of Yehud, the Persian state we later come to know as Judea. Now, one of the central parts of the story of Nehemiah after the walls are rebuilt is the arrival in Jerusalem of the priest Ezra. Ezra is appalled that the men of Israel have taken foreign wives and so diluted, polluted the holy seed. In a great showy ceremony, he gathers everybody together and prays to Yahweh a prayer of repentance and forces the men of Israel to send away all their foreign wives and their children off into the desert, into certain poverty and probable death. This is the price they must pay, according to the ideology of the Holy Seed, for keeping their people pure and holy, separate from contamination. Mark Brett argues that Genesis is put together around this time, later than the other books of the law, and that the way it tells these founding stories is designed to challenge this ideology of the Holy Seed, an ideology that supports the religious politics of imperial rule. As in many cultures throughout history, tracing bloodlines is a way to establish the right to land. If you can demonstrate the family tree, normally from firstborn male to firstborn male, you can justify the legitimate claim for a piece of land that has been in the family. Of course, in a context where the land is being resettled, the powerful people have been taken away and are now coming back to land that they once owned, but then had to forfeit. The politics of land rights is a really big deal. There's a whole property drive that no doubt forms the backdrop to this story. Mark Brett's account of Genesis, then, is as strategic resistance. Resistance in that it resists the politics of ethnic purity and strategic in the sense that it does so carefully. In a context where you are the minority voice in a powerful empire, you can't just come out and critique the imperial governors. You have to tell more careful stories than that. I can't do justice in this episode to Mark's very detailed reading of the prologue to Genesis but his overall approach feels very relevant and it's very careful. This idea that storytelling has the capacity to be subversive, to be resistant, that stories have the ability to look like they mean one thing, but in fact to somehow mean something quite opposite. This has been a focus of post-colonial theory for some time and Mark invites us to look at this prologue to Genesis through that lens. So let's go back to these genealogies 
They were the bits I skipped out in the storytelling. I mean, they're just boring, aren't they? Just lists of names, one after the other. And yet the way they are constructed is really interesting. The first genealogy is in Genesis chapter 4. It's the descendants of Cain. Enoch, Irad, Mahuel, Methushel, Lameth. Then the next genealogy is in the following chapter. The descendants of Seth, Cain's younger brother. Listen to the names. Enoch, Yared, Mahalel, Methuselah, Lamech. Now, those names from chapter 5 I just read in the wrong order. And I missed a few out. I missed out Enosh and Kenan. But the similarity is still uncanny. Similarities that are all the more obvious because of the only very subtle differences between the names, particularly when you sound them out as they would sound in Hebrew. Now the point here is not about reconstructing who was actually the father of who, and it's possible that these two genealogies are both variations on the same oral tradition, but that's not really the thing that interests me either. The point here is that there are two bloodlines, one that leads to violence, Cain's, and the other that leads to its redemption, Noah. At least that is the obvious way to read them. But on the other side of the flood with the shriveled earth and the failure to actually reset the world, with the advent of Babel, the great city and its tower, and the violence of humankind and everything that the flood had been designed to eliminate... We return to these bloodlines and discover that they are, in fact, almost identical. Holy seed, schmoly seed. You can't save the world through the purity of a bloodline. Now, that particular conclusion about how those two genealogies can be read is not one that Mark Brett himself actually reaches, although he does note the similarities between the names in the genealogies. For him, they are two radically different genealogies designed to show two options available. The first is an option of violence. The second is the path of Noah, of righteousness and integrity. This, says Mark Brett, underscores the resistant idea that how one lives, how one chooses to behave, to be in the world, is more important than whose descendant one is. That in the organisation of society, this has the power to challenge the ideology of a holy seed and create the basis for a different, more equal kind of society. It seems to me that that choice is present in the narrative. That what Mark is identifying is an important part of this story, but I am wanting to take it further. It is not simply that purity of ethnic blood is not the basis for a creative life together in a society. It is that the means by which that is undermined also matters. This is actually Mark Brett's conclusion generally in this piece. He works hard with the theory of Homi Baba, a post-colonial theorist who developed a notion of hybridity in culture. What's important about Baba's theory of cultural hybridity is that it is not simply the mixture of just one plus another equals a third kind of culture, but that in acknowledging hybridity in culture, one is acknowledging the fundamental instability of identity. If I say I am an Englishman in Cornwall, for example, I'm not just adding Englishness 
and Cornishness into some recipe that always produces the same result. Englishness is fundamentally unstable. Cornishness is fundamentally unstable. And all of the other identity markers in my own experience that determine how those two things interact are also unstable and particular. Particular in that they are specifically relevant to me and unstable in that my life is constantly on the move. I am always evolving and changing. And so those markers are as well. This is why I think the names in the genealogy matter. In a sense, I'm trying to take Mark Brett's general method and make it work harder on this particular passage. The fact that the genealogies are almost the same, but not quite. And yet, while looking like they're going to lead to very different paths, in the end, come back to bloodlines that both lead to empire and violence. This represents the inherent confusion at the heart of a cultural hybrid. This is Babel before Babel. The unstable at work way before Yahweh forced it upon the city. If that is confusing, let me try and say this another way. The Holy Seed is an ideology of black and white. I mean, that is literally how it plays out in our world, in notions of ethnic purity. But in a genealogical split that demonstrates how humankind can choose violence, or choose righteousness and integrity, the pathway of Cain that leads to Lamech, or the pathway of Seth that leads to Noah. There is a challenge to that poisonous idea that ethnic identity equals value. And yet, I am saying, I think this text can take us deeper, further, to the deconstruction, the confusion of essential identity itself. We can make a choice about how we live, yes, and that is more important than who our father is, yes. But that argument critiques the politics of ethnic purity from the outside. It doesn't destabilise it from within. That is what the unstable hybrid does. And that is why it's so exciting that that's what we've been reading in Genesis all along. We began this story with the face of the deep, the face of chaos and death. And over the great void is Elohim, a Canaanite name in a Hebrew story, a polytheist personality in a monotheist faith. Elohim is a cultural hybrid. Their identity unclear and unstable, and their first act is to breathe on the face of the other, to create something new. In this creation of separations, of light from dark, of skies from seas, of land from water, the Adam is made without separation. In the image of the Elohim, the unstable hybrid identity, like the Elohim, to have the faith to look on the face of the other and create. But Yahweh doesn't do hybrids. Yahweh likes to tear and separate, to force things apart. And so Yahweh's story of creation is the Adam from whom woman is torn, leaving man. Yahweh's is a story in which there is a garden of innocence, 
where order must be kept through the purity of naming things, where to grasp at knowledge and to realise that one's identity is lacking, that one is shamed naked and needs to add to clothe. This results in expulsion. To have discovered the wisdom of complexity threatens the mythologies of our identity, and Yahweh won't tolerate that mutiny. But in the tale of male violence, where Eve is in the earth, it is the transgender body of the Adam that we remember, a hybrid identity in the image of the Elohim. It is trans because it is in movement. Yahweh tears to make man and make woman be this thing, be that thing, one thing or another. But the trans identity in motion always undermines this separation. It resists the delineation. We are hybrids always in motion, always unstable. But like Cain and then Abel, there's a separation. Yahweh accepts and rejects, divides. And Abel's blood is in the earth. And Cain, the settler farmer, becomes a wanderer, an unstable hybrid. But the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth, broken apart, two choices, so similar but different. In the end, on the shriveled earth, we are hybrids of destruction and redemption, of separation and reconciliation. And in the end, we settle in Babel, but are unsettled, in Babel because it is not the end, it is the beginning. It is the confusion at the original as the Elohim breathes on the face of the deep. It is the unstable hybrid in the very name of God who is confusion. This was the conclusion of Babel. Yahweh wanted to smash open and scatter the great city to create division and separation. But the confusion was there already with the Elohim. Elohim, the name of God. Bahavel, the name of God. Instability in the very heart of being. Hmm. So, I'm feeling pretty hungry right now. It's coming up 24 hours since I've eaten. I've been taking part in, a, in something called Hungry for Democracy. Today marks 100 years since the Representation of the People Act in the UK, uh, which was the first time that women were given the right to vote, at least a limited franchise. And still, under our current system, most votes don't count. Like the US, we have a system called First Past the Post, and it's created an unrepresentative democracy which I suppose is not much democracy at all. So I've gone without food today because I want a more representative system. And more than anything, I wanted to remind myself how much that mattered. The democratic ideal is a big deal in the history of civilization. If the anarcho-primitivist anthropologists are correct, then there were good forms of democratic organisation in many of these early hunter-gatherer societies. But since the birth of the city-state, the need to control has brought with it domination and violence. It's brought with it monarchy and empire. 
democracy has slowly, very slowly pushed back that imperial logic and claimed a more equal participative society. Forces with vested interests, however, constantly resist the advance of democracy. There is just too much will to control. I really like the idea of a future primitivism, of a return to a deeper relationship with the earth. But I don't think we can go back. I don't think we can undo civilization. It's too far developed. And to me, the fairest, most just way of progressing, taking a next step, is to improve the democracy that we have. But the problem of the nation-state is particularly in the idea of identity. The idea that we are these people and not that people. In the new age of globalisation where borders are eroded through technology and economics, culture is constantly hybridised through creative evolution. As more migrants move and the internet brings cultural forms together, new possibilities have emerged in the world. And yet the backlash has not felt so strong for a generation. Which of the gods will win? Yahweh, who separates, or Elohim, who brings together? Yahweh, who emphasises purity, or the Elohim, the unstable, the very personalization of diversity, the hybrid identity? This isn't the only way this story can be read, but it feels to me like a reading for our time. We may no longer subscribe to any mythology of a holy seed, but the forces of separation and purity are still alive and well. To me, democracy feels like the covenant with Elohim hammered out after the flood, an unsatisfactory way forward to try and work in the everyday difficulty of real life to actually find a way forward together. The alternative is just to wipe everything out and start again. And just like that covenant, the representation of our system needs to take seriously the life of every living thing, of the whole ecosystem, the biosphere on which we depend. At the heart of this exposure of an unstable identity, a hybrid, the loss of original, the God who is confusion, at the root of all that is the relationship with the earth, the Adam that is trans, in movement, unstable, is formed from the earth, the Adam and the Adama. It is in the earth, in the cycles of death and life that form the biological basis of all of creation, that we find the movement that keeps us from fixed power. In the earth there are seeds, but they must die. They must die before they can be reborn. Change, instability, is the very basis of life. The desire to control, one of our most basic impulses, is unnatural. It is what builds cities. It is what makes wars. It is what determines identities and sends women and children away into the desert. It is what forges empires and what makes us aspire to be a god. But that life tears apart. That life that seems so stable is fixed and turns to stone. The living life is in movement, in birth and death, in the death of a seed in winter and the life of a leaf in spring.
in identities that move because they are hybrid, that can change and be remade. For we are not made in the image of God, but of gods, of the hybrid gods, the confusion that can breathe on the face of the very other and make new. Oh, gods be good, me hearties. We've reached the end of series one. Well, I'm off to find me some rum. Please do get in touch on the Bible Pirate website, BiblePirate.com, the Facebook page, Bible Pirate, or on Twitter, at Bible underscore Pirate. It's great hearing from you. And if you've enjoyed this series, please do spread the word. Shout loudly and generally recruit some good-for-nothings to go sailing with us. Stay connected and we'll let you know when the next series is live. But for now, thanks for joining us on this Bible Pirate adventure with stories beyond the horizon.